This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 297 for Monday, March 11th, 2013, Space Stations Part 2, Mir. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Hey, Pamela, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Uh, good, good. A little stuffed up, a little bit of a head cold, chest cold thing going on, and I know you're suffering from your seasonal allergies. Yeah, and the seasonal allergies like to cause other things to get to grow with the pollen in the sinuses. It's so charming. Yeah, so it's beautiful, but you don't want to go out and no. check it out because it's just going to attack you with its, it's pollen goodness. It's death from the plants instead of death from the skies. Death from the plants. Triffids. Um, yeah. All right, so we've got any, any interesting announcements? Are we still Do we still have any openings for, the, uh, for people looking to join our astronomy classes? Yes. So there are, and this only pertains to the people who are watching it live, there are five more hours to sign up for the few remaining oh, really? spots okay. in, um, in our cosmology class. So go to cosmoquest.org slash classes to learn more, and we will be repeating that later on. So go express your interest in email if you want to sign up for a later date. And uh, and Dr. Mr. Francis, uh, he... The joined us on. Uh, I guess he's the uh, the bowler hat astronomer. Yes. Yeah. But he joined us on uh, the weekly space hangout on Friday and uh, sort of got to tackle the big updates to dark matter, the dis- potential discovery of dark matter, and uh, yes. it, it's great. He did a great job. So he's he's definitely got his cosmology chops and particle physics chops. So I think he'll he's have writing really the book on it. So he wrote the book on it. Okay, great. Well, let's get rolling then. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Eighth Light Inc. Eighth Light is an agile software development company. They craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. Eighth Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.eighthlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thedigit8th. L-I-G-H-T dot com. Drop them a note. Eighth Light. Software is their craft. Last week, we introduced the history of space stations and focused on the U.S. and Soviet stations that were launched after the Apollo era. This week, we look at one of the longest running missions ever launched, Mir. From its launch and construction to its fiery finale, Mir helped both the Russians and the Americans extend their understanding of what it actually takes to live in space. So... We are now moving from my childhood to my professional career in sort of the history here in that, you know, I can remember Mir, I guess I wasn't a child, I guess I was sort of in my early 20s when Mir launched, but I actually was there reporting on sort of some of the later missions and its final... What year do you think it launched? Didn't it launch in the the 80s? Yeah, 86. Was 86. Okay, yeah. So no, I was still a child. I was, I was a yeah. teenager. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I was and say, then you're not that much right, older. I'm not that much older. No, no. And then but but amazingly, right? So I was, yeah, that's right. I was a teenager when it launched and there was missions. And then but then I had become an astronomy journalist by the time it was ready to deorbit it in the early nineties. So this this was a very long lived it it Sorry, in the two thousands. Sorry, in the early two yeah. thousands. Man, I cannot get my numbers straight. 
it's 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 that kind of a Monday. Um, yeah, this was a really long-lived mission. It it went from 1986 to uh, it came thundering down through the atmosphere in 2001, and along the way, it it survived the downfall of the Soviet Union. Uh, it transferred hands from the, the Soviet space program to the Russian space program. Uh, it went from being a Cold War platform to one that was uh, visited by multiple nations, including converting a docking port originally designed for the Soviet space plane Buran into one that allowed the U.S. space shuttle to, to um, happily dock with, with Mir. It... Yeah, this was one heck of a mission. Yeah. So let's go back then and sort of begin at the beginning. Uh, sort of when did, what was sort of, what led up to Mir and what sort of began that as the next big space station? Because when last we saw our heroes, uh, there was the uh, the U.S. Sky Lab and there was the Salyut stations. Yeah. But Mir was a whole other sort of order of magnitude and sort of size, complexity, weight, and the kinds of missions they were going to be doing. So it, it gets talked about as a third-generation space, space station, and the ISS is also a third-generation space station. These are first-generation are things that get launched, they stay in space, you use them with one crew, and then they're dead. Uh, second generation were single launch, one module space stations like the Salyut series towards the end that crews came and went and it got restocked and it was a, a long lived maintained platform to live on in space. These third generation space stations, they went to the next step and they were constructed out of multiple modules and constructed on orbit, uh, allowing uh, basically updates, new experiments and and a growth platform that that as money allowed, they could continue to grow this this system. They had um, kind of like an advanced Lego block system built on orbit. So how many pieces does it have? A lot. So it, it gets complicated to ask how many pieces does it have because there's all of the main modules that it had that, that are the things that human beings can move through. Then there's the things that got mounted on it that people couldn't go into. Then there's the experiments that came and went over time. And so in general, while it's fair to say that this was basically... A, a medi-armed monster, a six-armed monster that had uh, eight major components with all of the different things coming off the sides. I, I don't think you can simply say it had this many pieces because it was used just like any laboratory, a variety of different ways over the course of its lifetime with experiments that were mounted on the inside coming and don't going over time. But the construction would feel very familiar to what's been happening with the International Space Station, right? It was built in pieces. And and it what's kind of awesome is unlike the International Space Station that has this careful symmetry, careful floor planning, this really looks like a kid basically took a whole bunch of different toy spacecraft and crammed them together to see what it could get. Um, where the International Space Station has its main banks of solar arrays with with the Soviet Mir, 
each component had a, its own solar arrays, its own photovoltaic systems. Uh, so each module in in many ways was self-sufficient. Um, there, there were a few exceptions to that. The docking module was powered by the rest of the space station. But more or less, these are a bunch of individual, multiple generations of technology pieces that just repeatedly got plugged together over time. Yeah, and it's quite a, it's quite amazing how sort of how I guess how many they put into this, how many of these pieces are, how many each one was sort of self reliant, and and sort of how they constructed this thing. Have you have you ever read? I think it was called Dragonfly. It's a it's a book about the Mir space station and goes into some of the. It's done from the point of view of a. He was a, he was a British astronaut working, but with NASA, and talks about the crazy stuff that happened near the near the end of it. I mean, by the time it was nearing the end of its life, as you know, we had sort of hinted at this last week, it was turning into a pretty nasty place to live. Yeah, they they'd had a couple of different fires, and in one case, the the fire was was actually a little bit more adventuresome than one would want. This this occurred while they were in the process of swapping out crews. So instead of only having three people on board, which is the standard crew for Mir, they had six people on board, but they only had respirator systems for three. And because they're in the process of, of unloading and remo- and redoing things and stuff, there were hoses in the way of being able to get to one of the Soyuz escape pot modules. And had they not been able to get the fire under control and the fire extinguishers were like attached to the wall, they couldn't pull them off and like take them to the fire. But if they hadn't gotten the fire under control, they would have definitely lost at least three people, if not everybody. And there was a time when one of the Progress Supply craft crashed into it. It, it got crashed into. There was another case where one was trying to dock and it couldn't quite dock. And during a spacewalk to figure out what the heck was going on, they discovered a loose bag of garbage that had somehow <laughs> escaped into space and was blocking the docking hatch. Um, that that's like the crazy. Why won't my garage, my automatic garage door close? And you realize that there's like an empty McDonald's can. Right. Um, except this is a space spaceship. Yeah. Well, they 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 <laughs> use a. If I recall correctly, the Russians, the Soviets used this automated docking system while the Americans would always dock manually. Right. And they had this camera system so they could sort of see the the, the Soviets had set it all up so it would all automatically dock. As you can imagine, the docking attempting to happen and then bumping into the garbage. <laughs> um, <laughs> a Roomba gone wrong is, yeah, is all yeah. that's coming to my mind. <laughs> but, but before we get into the sort of the, the later stages and the kind of where things started to go a little, you know, it got a little long in awry. the tooth. Awry, a little long in the tooth. Um, but let's talk about some of the sort of some of the records, because this was, I know, before the International Space Station, this was the largest thing that had ever been orbited around the Earth. I mean, and and up until 2010, it was the longest manned thing or womaned thing, human thing in space, and it accomplished vast amounts of science. Um, one of the things in its construction that, that made me particularly pleased is. With the International Space Station, we start from scratch. We built everything from scratch. Well, the, the Russians don't work that way. The Soviets didn't work that way. 
And so while they were in the process of building it, they actually went over to the last Salyut that was still in orbit and they grabbed all of the science experiments off of it and took them over to Mir so they could keep doing the science. They took the scientific instruments, brought them over. They had an entire compartment crystal that was dedicated to biochemistry experiments, including microgravity chemistry to grow crystals in space, thus the name. Um, so this was a platform designed pretty much from the ground up as a science platform. That's why it was there. And along the way, they did all these inadvertent experiments on what happens when you stick people in space for too long and trap them there. Um, so it, it was kind of amazing, both the purposefully broken records and the accidentally broken records that occurred. So, so what were some of the purposefully broken records that they were going for? Longest human spaceflight, obviously. Yeah, clearly. Longest human spaceflight, uh, longest spaceflight manned by humans, uh, highest number of people in space at one time, all the basics, longest spacewalk, most spacewalks in shortest period of time, all of those things, one after another, were getting broken. Now, um, you said some, some sort of unexpected records that they broke. I yes, I, I think my favorite story, mostly because I I was living my own version of it in a way. I I went to the Soviet Union in 1991, leaving America on the day the first desert war, desert war, desert storm war started, and returned to America two weeks before the Soviet coup. And so I was there watching the restlessness occur and had one of these, I probably need to leave now type of thoughts going through my head. I was just a high school kid on a foreign exchange program. And so when the Soviet coup occurred, I was watching it very closely. And one of the stories that caught my attention was the story of cosmonaut third class Sergei Krikalev. And this, this poor guy, he's up in space, orbiting on the, the Mir space station. And they they didn't have the money to launch a rescue mission to bring him back. Right. And, and so he's up there. Uh, economic disputes are going on. Fragmentation of the Soviet Union is taking place. Where he's supposed to land is no longer part of the Soviet bloc. It's now its own independent country. And and eventually they they were able to bring it back, uh, bring him back. Um, but yeah, he he was up there for longer than he anticipated. And there are many interesting uh, news article titles about uh, stranded cosmonaut, uh, the man who no longer wanted to fly. And and can you imagine the situation of you go into space? hero of your nation you come back having that nation no longer exist land into a nation that didn't exist when you took off and now you're a citizen of a country that that also didn't exist when you took right. off and so he was up there i think is this right it was, it was valeri polakayev right he was up there for 437 days is that the one this is actually sergey uh Krakalev. Oh, okay, he was up okay. there for 313 days yeah um so he wasn't the record holder but record, he was up yeah. there much longer than he intended to be. right he because typically i know their missions originally were, were they wanted them to be up around six months or so so they didn't yeah. know 
what was going to happen to the astronauts beyond a certain point. And being up in space in that microgravity really wears down the body and really, you know, you lose a lot of your bone mass. Mm-hmm. You know, it's and, not. And when Sergei got back, he had to be supported by soldiers and he was very dizzy. There were health side effects. Um, so it was a kind of mystifying situation, psychologically damaging situation and not particularly healthy for your bones situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you get extra radiation. But then, as I mentioned, then the, the longest year is 437 days Yeah, by Valery Polakov, which and, is and that crazy. Was more on purpose. That was the plan was 430 <laughs> days. Like, let's push this to the outer limits. Yeah. So there there were some more challenging and less challenging. I, I think one of my favorite stories of of the different crews that went up though was probably Shannon um, Lucid. She was an astronaut, one of the early women astronauts selected by NASA. She's been she was an astronaut starting in the late 70s. She flew multiple times during the space shuttle program. And then for a long time she held the US record for the largest number of days of a US person in space. And this was she she took off in 1996 uh, aboard space space shuttle Atlantis and um, ended up in space for over 180 days with um, two cosmonauts that apparently spent most of the flight bickering with one another. So according to stories that you hear when you get people at NASA at the correct level of either exhausted or slightly intoxicated, you hear about how she spent most of her flight basically, you go to that corner, you go to that corner uh, while running her biochemistry experiments. Right. And, and it's just kind of an awesome awesome reality happens in space we may call these people heroes but they're also humans and and you were mentioning about you know that she was a nasa astronaut that that nasa got involved in the mirror game pretty heavily and sent several missions with the space shuttle atlantis they modified mirror to be able to dock with atlantis it was a it was actually quite a great era of cooperation it, it really was. There, there was a period here in the U.S. where rather than building our own space station, we, we gave good, hard thought to, well, what would it take to just keep adapting and keep flying beer? Now, on, on one level, there was the problem that Mir was just kind of dirty, smelly, awful. But, of course, now the ISS is too, so who's talk? But on the other hand, there there was just problems with because of the way it was built, it gets a lot of drag. Uh, it had to constantly be boosted to higher orbits. And then with the fires, the crashing of the progress and things, it was just getting a little bit beat up. So eventually the idea of keeping Mir was abandoned. But in the process of leading up to the do we keep or do we ditch Mir, um, there was this this new cooperation that began in 1994. So the Soviet coup occurred summer of 1991. That was when Yeltsin took over. That was when it became Russia instead of the Soviet Union. And you saw the collapse of the Soviet bloc with Lithuania, Estonia, uh, Kyrgyz- 
Kyrgyzstan, I'm going to mangle that one. Many of the Soviet bloc nations became independent countries. 1994, the United States and the new Russian Republic began feeling one another out to do joint missions with phase one of this being the space shuttle discovery going on on a mission that included cosmonaut Sergei Krakalev. In 1995, the space shuttle went to Mir. As I said, they they reconfigured a docking port that was originally designed for the never really flown to space Buran space plane. Uh, they they put that into play for the space shuttle instead, and then we kept doing missions year after year after year, all the way through the 90s. And in the 2000s, that was when the program started to wind down due to safety concerns and also because the the scientific return after the specter science model failed to to make it um it just wasn't what had been anticipated and mir was a science platform so that pretty much brought an end to the program. There was talk for a while um of of selling mir, which I find to be just awesome but but in in the end that didn't happen either it almost happened but um now and i think but i think one of the things that, that really is interesting is how now when you look at the international space station crews especially right at the beginning there was like one russian and two americans or one american and two russians that there was really this emphasis and for a big chunk of the 90s Americans were learning Russian. They were going to Russia. They were training at Star City. That there was this, you, yeah, there, you did. Um, well, I, I didn't. Train. Do, I, I learned Russian, and I worked with yeah. Soviet scientists because in the early '90s we were all recognizing that even while the Cold War was going on, that it's these two nations that are going to have the greatest scientific return. Uh, it, a British scientist I work with, uh, Jake Nolster, he was part of a program in England that sent some of their top students to train at Star City. And it it, it was recognized, this is the direction we have to go. And I, I think astronomers are more likely to speak bad Russian than they are to speak any other foreign language. Yeah, and and I and again, I think this was in Dragonfly, just talking about this training because a lot of the times these you know these were the, your corn-fed American astronauts, right? Who have been you know haven't learned a lick of Russian, although in many cases they're super geniuses. So so they go over there and and then they spend this time training and learning the language and going through a battery of medical tests to be able to serve on a Russian space station. I mean, it was such a it, when you just think about how the Cold War was like still kind of going on or had just ended and already these plans of collaboration were in the works. I think it was a pretty interesting thing that, that happened. Yeah. And, and by the late nineties, it was recognized that if you were going to apply for the U S astronaut program, you had to be fluent in Russian. And, and so it was interesting talking with people. We had some at the university of Texas who were applying for the astronaut corps. Um, they spoke fluent Russian. They had their EMT certification. They were pilots. They were scientists. Uh, you had to check every box to have a chance of being selected, let alone even just becoming a finalist. You had to have all those boxes checked. Just another, I guess, another way that astronauts are incredible human beings because they, oh yeah, sure, I'll learn Russian. If you give me enough time, I'll learn Russian. Yeah. 
It's easier than learning English, to be honest. Oh, is it? You know, you've you've yeah. gone through it. Um, uh, okay, so so I think I'd like to focus a bit just on some of those disasters because there were a couple of events that were quite scary that happened with with Mir. The one was the fire, and you sort of went into this a bit. But can you kind of give the story of what happened with that fire? Um, fires happen. I'm not sure what else to to say on this one. So uh, they had a, a malfunction of one of their solid fuel oxygen generators. And, and oxygen's kind of a little bit flammable. Actually, it's what's required for fire to happen. Yeah. And, and so this, this fire burned for, depending on, on exactly uh, which source you read, anywhere from a couple of minutes to almost 15 minutes. And the problem with, with this is you can't open the windows to get fresh air in when yes. you're on the space station. And, and, so they ran into problems with the respirators being broken that they're using to try and be able to survive on board. They, they thought for a little while, I remember this um, when I was in college, they thought for a little while they might have to uh, abandon the, the space station. And so that was a bit of a problem. Um, they were able to, to pull it out. They were able to um, survive it, but there, as I said, there were a number of problems from from their escape vessel being blocked to broken respirators, and yeah, it was just kind of awful. Right. So I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read a little chunk here. So uh, that it was um, uh, the Vi- it was the Vika. So, so the on Mir they have these these uh, this thing called the electron, which was a oxygen generation system, but it was breaking down all the time. And so they went to this yeah. other these they had these sort of like these solid pods that they could use that could generate with this Vika system that would generate oxygen for the for the station. And the thing you know, and so this thing was a little more a little more dangerous because it was pumping out this this oxygen. Um, and so uh, they you know the official report was the fire burned for about uh, ninety. About 90 seconds but so jerry lininger this is the guy who wrote this book dragonfly he said it went on for about 14 minutes produced tons of toxic smoke they couldn't clear uh the crew had to put on respirators but they but they the masks some of the masks were broken and so they were looking around for for respirators that worked and so it was just um oh and the fire extinguishers mounted on the walls couldn't be moved so it was just you know Fire is the big danger on these space stations. And and, it, and this fire was triggered by getting hit with progress. And and so when you get hit by another space station and you catch on fire. <laughs> yeah. It's a bad day. Yeah. And so and that's the other part, right? Which is that there was sort of the docking accidents that you mentioned with the progress and with the uh yeah. um with the <laughs> the garbage. Yeah. Um, so, you know, now you mentioned as well that that the you know that Mir's orbit was degrading. It was having harder and harder times boosting its orbit up. So it was time to you know it was getting old and kind of scary inside. And the Russian inside. economy didn't And the Russian exist. economy, yeah, wasn't ready to keep it going. So there was there was a plan to maybe buy it out, but there was also a plan to deorbit it. So do you remember anything about that plan to to buy it out? So so there there's a variety of different plans. There was a Japanese television station. There was an American television station. There were actually commercials projected onto the outside of the space station. Um, and and all of these different things appeared in different magazines at different points. Um, 
But but at the end of the day, when each of these organizations looked at not only what is the cost of maintaining Mir, which itself wasn't that bad, but then getting people to and from, that was where a lot more of the cost came from. It, it simply, it was unfeasible for everybody. The, the U.S. doesn't do that sort of, there, there's no way America is going to fly or was going to fly in the space shuttle uh, Japanese television crews up to the former Russian space station to do reality TV from orbit. The Soviet turned Russian fledgling new baby space agency how do you trust them to be able to keep going after they've periodically abandoned their own humans in space so the risk was too high at that point for any commercial agency to take this on basically as an entertainment platform which was what it was being looked at for yeah and so the problem with the space station, it, you know, as we mentioned, it was the largest thing that had ever been orbited. Uh, we had seen from Skylab that these things could easily survive reentry, and it was going to crash somewhere. Well, so so the nice difference between this vehicle and and Space Lab, Skylab rather, is Skylab was a chunk, oh, single module, extremely dense, lots of things capable of surviving reentry. And because it was a single chunk of spacecraft, as it comes through, depending on if they can't get it tilted just right, it can survive longer because it's not getting as much drag. Clearly, if you have a giant spiky thing, which is pretty much what Mir was, a giant spiky thing, as it comes through the atmosphere, it experiences a great deal more drag. Great deal more drag is going to break it apart at a higher altitude and is going to cause it to burn up a lot more. It also wasn't as dense on average as as Skylab was. So it had a lot of things going in its favor for um, not potentially destroying a city when it decided to hit the planet. They had more control over it. They spent a, a great deal of time after they took all of the last crews off. Um, they sent a progress craft up, which is one of their, we still use progresses. We just use more modern ones. Uh, they sent up a modified progress capsule that instead of being filled with supplies was filled with fuel that they could use to essentially steer it, slow its orbit and have a very controlled re-entry. Yeah. Uh, it, it ended up disintegrating and coming down around the area of Fuji, a nice, big, empty Pacific Ocean, basically. Yeah, and I remember there was uh, flights you could take to go out, out into the South Pacific and try and, and sort of follow the trail of the of it as it was crashing because because yeah. as you said you know they had because they had that progress on board they had really good control over where yeah. they were going to crash it down and they crashed it in the south pacific away from from everything but they they kind of knew what was going on and knew what was going to happen which is very different from you know when we have these these space telescopes and such that have no way of of re-entering you know safely and they just you know there's a chance it might hit a person but this one, you know, they knew they knew they could minimize that chance. And I think that's part of why they they deorbited when they did was just like let's make let's wrap this up safely as opposed to, you know, 
let's not drag it out also that was yeah. i mean one of the things is at this point both nations were looking at building the international space station and yeah. uh, as they were looking towards building that, they needed to free up the funding that was going to tracking Mir, to making sure that Mir's orbit was stable, to uh, making sure it didn't collide violently with various space junk and other things in orbit. Uh, so a lot of effort, which translates into a lot of salary, was going into maintaining Mir, and they needed to free that up to go on to build newer things. Right. So there's definitely some political stuff going on as well cool okay so this is part two uh next week we're going to talk about we're going to jump into the modern age and we're going to talk about the international space station and a bit about the the chinese tiangong station and then maybe if we're feeling uh you know up for it we'll do a fourth part of this trilogy and talk about the future of space stations so cool well thank you very much pamela my pleasure thanks for listening to astronomy cast a non-profit resource provided by Astrosphere New Media Association, Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at astronomycast.com. You can email us at info at astronomycast.com. Tweet us at astronomycast. Like us on Facebook or circle us on Google+. We record our show live on Google+, every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, or 2000 Greenwich Mean Time. If you missed the live event, you can always catch up over at CosmoQuest.org. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. residents. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend us to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Our music is provided by Travis Searle and the show is edited by Preston Gibson.